G'day mate, 40 here. So I was just thinking about some of the natural implications of what I'm always saying on this show. And one big natural implication of what I say on this show is that I have no importance. All right. I am not standing here before you telling you that uh, the COVID vaccine is, you know, bad for you. Right. That would be like a, you know, a radical perspective that you could, you know, only get on some kind of fringe site. I'm not here telling you that, you know, the COVID lockdowns were the greatest mistake in human history. All right, that was Dennis Prager's perspective. Uh, my perspective is that the public health authorities did the best they could with a difficult situation. They made some mistakes, but uh, I don't think overall they, you know, were powered any more by nefarious drives than you or I would be, right? And so if I were my father... Right. If I were Dr. Desmond Ford right now, I could stand before you and I could offer you assurance of your eternal salvation. I could tell you that if you believed in Jesus, right, as your personal savior, you would forever live in the bosom of God and you could spend eternity with your loved ones and that it is guaranteed, absolute guarantee, eternal life, guaranteed. All you have to do is believe. All right. So if I was my father, I could promise that. If I were if I were anything like Dennis Prager, I could give you like 50 amazing insights into life that, that are not backed up by any academic studies that uh, go against all the conventional wisdom that you would only get from an iconoclast like me. I mean, if I were Richard Spencer, right, I could sit here and I could offer you a brand new religion, Apolloism. If I were Richard Spencer, I could you know, offer you brand new smoking hot takes on the issues of the day that are completely contrary to what you expect for me to say. So I could trash Trump for months and then I could start supporting Trump and then like just always giving you the latest, greatest, hottest takes. And and I can't do that. If I was Jean-Francois Garapi, I could talk about, uh, what was that book he wrote that could bring about the end of the world, right? So I could, you know, preach the apocalypses at hand. We're, we're in a non-shooting civil war. Dennis Prager has been talking about that for 25 years. That right now, life in America is a non-shooting civil war. Now, that just so happens to be a lie, right? There is no such thing as a non-shooting civil war. All civil wars, by definition, involve mass slaughter, mass murder, massive amounts of killing. So, no, we're not in a non-shooting civil war. But how exciting would that be if I could offer you that insight? So you look around and you see trees and you see sunshine and you see people going about their day, going to work, driving, and and uh, you don't see any signs of civil war. But if I could convince you that there was a civil war, that we're in a civil war, I remember Dennis Prague would say to me, he would encourage me, he'd give me strength when I was struggling with my chronic fatigue syndrome. He'd say, you are needed in the fight for good values. If only I could stand here and tell you that you are needed in the fight for good values. Guys, we have to stand up and fight against the degradation and the destruction of the traditional America that we all know and love, which is being brought about by the Democrats who are satanic pedophiles. Right? I, 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 can't, I can't offer you that. So you may be asking, 40, what do you offer? Like, what is your importance? And I don't have any, right? I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. 
I mean, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask me, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, by land, by air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against the monstrous tyranny of liberalism and leftism and the Democrats of satanic pedos, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You can ask, what is our A? Well, I can answer in one word. It is victory. It is victory at all costs. It is victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. But I take up my task, guys, with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. Come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. I mean, I can't even offer you that. I can't offer you total war. I can't offer you demons and angels. I mean, how amazing could that be if I stand before you right now and tell you about the demons out there and the angels out there and how to get in line with the angels and to fight on the side of the angels? Just imagine that I was 40, the demon slayer. And I said, guys, we have to gird our spiritual loins and take up the good book and we have to slay the demons out there. I mean, what an exciting, awesome show this would be. What a magical, enchanted world. What if I could, you know, offer you this, this tremendous battle of good versus evil and come off the sidelines, guys. You need to get involved. You need to fight against evil. Instead, I say such boring, mundane things over and over again, like your primary purpose in life, your primary meaning in life, your primary excitement in life, your primary morality in life should stem from having a family and from connecting to your extended family. And then if there's room left over after that, then friends and community and interests. Now, I don't have a family of, of my own. I'm not married. I've never had kids, right? So I have more room than what would be normal, natural, and healthy in my life. So I fill that extra room with live streaming, with friends, with community, with my intellectual interests, with subscriptions to, you know, 10 10 different uh, newspapers. So I wish I could stand before you and say, guys, we have to band together and it just exterminate the termites. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't offer you that. I wish I could stand before you and promise you 70 Vestal Virgins. Or how are Vestal Virgins superior to regular virgins? Uh, please, please let me know. I wish I could you know, offer you you know, 70 virgins in paradise if you just, you know, wipe out the, the termites. I mean, it, what if I could tell you, guys, you just need to eat meat and then your health problems are going to be solved. What if I said, oh, you just need to take up the Alexander technique and you'll no longer, you know, have physical suffering. Man, what a, what a beautiful world. What if I could, what if I like truly believed and acted and spoke to you like I was a vessel for God? Can you imagine the confidence that I would have? Can you imagine the charisma that would just leap off the screen if I truly internalized and believed that I was a vessel for God, that the creator of the universe was speaking through me? Wow. I mean, that would be incredible. Dennis Prager truly believes that he's a vessel for God. And I say, God bless anyone who believes they're a vessel for God. I believe that occasionally I act as a, as a vessel for God. All right. I'd like to think that or a vessel for reality, <laughs> or, you know, I'm just out there delivering divine karma. I mean, if I was my brother, I could sell you a lovely shrubbery, but I'm not my brother, and I can't sell you a shrubbery. 
If I was my sister, I could offer you biblical counseling. But I'm not my sister. I can't offer you biblical counseling. I'm not my father. I can't offer you eternal salvation. I can't say that I am the vehicle by which you will be saved, empowered, enlightened. I, I, I wish I could say that. I can't, I can't tell you that the Democrats are the real racists. I wish I could tell you that. The Dems, guys, the Dems are the real racists. The, the, the Democrats are the primary problem in this country today. I, I can't tell you about the, the hidden laws of history that have just been made known to me, and so now I have the golden key for how the world works. Man, I, I can't even offer you that. I, I can't tell you about the spiritual currents that are sweeping us away to damnation and destruction. Man, man, I, I mean, what the hell? What the hell can I, I possibly offer you? I've got nothing compared to the pros. I know it does not come from a bad or arrogant place. I had that at your age. So, at, at just very briefly, at the age of 20, the Israeli government found me and sent me to the Soviet Union for a month to smuggle in religious items, to smuggle out names of Jews who wanted to leave. I was barely 20 years old. I had just turned 20. And I knew Russian and Hebrew, so I was a, the perfect candidate for, for doing this. Do you know how I felt on the plane going into the Soviet Union that the Israeli government is paying for this trip and sending me for an extremely important mission? And, I'm, and all I kept saying is, Dennis Prager from Brooklyn. Dennis Prager from Brooklyn. However, I, I have your... So what do you think of the tool for kind of unlocking pundits and live streamers and radio talk show hosts? Does what they say enhance their importance? Because if what they're saying enhances their importance, you're probably dealing with some kind of destructive guru. If that's the, the dominant, you know, undercurrent to what they say, that, you know, listen to me, you know, I'll save you from damnation, the civil war, the apocalypse, I have the keys to salvation. And I, that's just my new, that's my new magic key to unlocking pundits and radio talk show hosts and podcasters. Like, is the, is the primary theme of what they have to say that, you know, they are more important than you really think they are. Or, and this may, I hope it doesn't lower me in the esteem of, of viewers, it's not a bad thing. And I'll explain me, and you'll find this fascinating. I knew they would choose me when they interviewed me at the Israeli Foreign Office. I knew I would win the one award Brooklyn College gave to 2,500 students to have a full year abroad paid for. I knew I would win it. It wasn't arrogant. It was just, I just... I know I wouldn't win a physics prize. It's not, I didn't think I'm omnipotent, but that was my, that was what I was best at, being interviewed, speaking, making a good impression, having deep ideas. So I won that, and that's what made the Russian trip possible, and and, and, and then everything flowed from that. I was sent to the United Nations the next year. That's so cool. They had, the, the, I, you don't know no, this I, one. No, I didn't know that. In 1970, the 25th anniversary of the UN, they had the World Youth Assembly, the only time they ever had it. And I was chosen as one of the delegates to the United Nations. We were in the Security Council. We were in the General That's Assembly. So cool. Yes, unbelievable. I'll tell you one great story. I, I, this, was, this, was, this is quintessential me. We're sitting in the Security Council, and it was already run by the world's left. That the, the chairman of the Security Council was a Palestinian delegate. Okay? So I'm sitting I I there, and then the Russian delegate, and this is not make-believe. This is real Palestinians, real Russians. Oh, and by the way, the Soviet delegation were all over 40. These people have been going to youth assemblies for like 20 years. It was a joke. They're professional youths. So uh, he got up and he was annoyed about something and he says, I smell a conspiracy. And it's coming through simultaneous translation. Everything oh. was the same as is at the UN itself. It was the UN. 
and I raise my hand, point of order, point of order, and they have to be called. Yes, said, to the Soviet delegate who said he smells a conspiracy, I can only say there's a very famous American saying, he who smelt it, dealt it. O-M-G. Well, First of all, that is witty and that is ballsy. Correct on both. That's me at 21 years of age in the I UN. I love it. So, <laughs> there was, so there's a gallery at the Security Council. They burst out laughing. The guy cleared out the gallery because they couldn't stop laughing <laughs> after my comment. Oh, my God. I can imagine so, them yes. being translated. Oh, I know. You, well, dying. obviously, it was done for English-speaking people. I, I'm right. sure they in but some still. way. Yeah. So I'm just telling you, all of these things happened by, by, by the age of 22. Let's see, at 1970, I wasn't yet 22. I turned 22 in the summer. This, this was right before that. So my view of myself, to get to a very serious point, was it makes sense that this is happening to me. I was immensely grateful. I, I just... The, but I knew what I believed God had given me. And the reason I didn't get arrogant or anything like that uh, is that I believed I am just... This, this is new. All of this is new to you. I have viewed my life from that age... I am a vessel for these ideas. That's all I am. I'm like a telephone. I'm, I'm like a radio. I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a podcast, not, or, which didn't exist then, obviously, but that's all I am. And, I, and, and therefore, it wasn't, oh, I'm terrific. It was, oh, yes, I have these abilities to do good with them. Yes, totally. I, I echo that. I always felt that I was given what Gina was supposed to have. Huh. God didn't give it to her, but... So she has a, uh, Julie Hartman has a severely autistic uh, sister, uh, Gina. But anyway, I can't say that. I can't say that I am a vessel for God. I mean, I, I aim in that direction. I would like to think if you uh, work next to me or hang out with me or we're at synagogue together or 12-step meeting together or walking down the street or interactions on a bus or planes or trains or automobiles, I'd, I'd like to think that 95% uh, of the time I'm a pretty happy guy. And so if I can bring a little happiness, a little joy, you know, a little humor, a little help into your life, then, yeah, I'm down with, with that possibly being uh, allowing me to be a vessel for God. But, you know, what are these ideas that Dennis Prager is talking about where he feels that he is a vessel for God? And you could, you could basically sum, sum it up with he believes that he has a mission from God to teach people right and wrong. And so one big emphasis of his life's work, of his writing, of his teaching, of his preaching, of his radio show, of Prager University, is to how to raise kids. All right? How do you raise kids? Now, the research, as I understand it, indicates that parenting doesn't matter much for how kids turn out. Right? What shapes kids is primarily their genetics and their peer group. So if my understanding of the research is correct. His life mission and his feeling that he's a, a vessel for God by teaching people right and wrong is largely a delusion. Now, it, it fills it with tremendous strength, with tremendous energy. There's an enormous audience for this. There's an enormous market to tap. But what we're talking about is a lie. What we're talking about is hype, exaggeration, you know, way above the facts you're you're preaching and teaching you know right and wrong and how, how to raise you know good kids and whether or not kids turn out to be good is not primarily coming from parenting parent parental uh, styles all right there's no type of parenting within the normal spectrum that is being shown to produce statistically verifiable results so it must be empowering, it must be exciting, it must 
fill you up inside. It must give you energy and strength and determination to go out there and be a vessel for God. I mean, I, it just sounds absolutely intoxicating, but it's a lie. It's, it's hype. It's, there's a considerable element of lie in it. It's a delusion, but it feels amazing. Like as a Dennis Prager devotee for many years, it was absolutely intoxicating for me. It's absolutely intoxicating for you know tens of thousands of people who've been influenced or touched by Dennis Prager, right? That you're in touch with someone who's in touch with God, right? You are listening to someone who's a vessel for God. How could that not be exciting? So listen to Tucker Carlson again, right? He's saving America. So listen for the for the undertone. Listen for what's going on under the words from almost every pundit live streamer. Their main point seems to be, you know, I am far more important than you realize. You are a victim. I am fighting for you. I am the vehicle by which you can find salvation, whether it's in secular, religious, spiritual, or political terms. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Happy Monday. Artificial intelligence is one of those topics that's just spooky and sci-fi enough to make for a compelling television segment. They love it on the morning shows. But at the same time, AI is complex enough that it's easy to misrepresent. It sounds like something that could be revolutionary, even dangerous to humanity. But is it? And if it is, what should we do about it? Those questions are significant enough that we wanted to find someone who could provide a definitive answer. Elon Musk seemed like the right person. Musk has been thinking about AI and worrying about it for most of his life. Nearly a decade ago, he helped found a nonprofit research project called OpenAI, and the point was in the name. So do you think Tucker Carlson would be after land all these amazing right-wing interviews if he said anything critical about them? So in my experience, you say anything critical about a public figure, someone who's got more prestige, social capital, social status than you, then they just, they just forever dismiss you, right? You, you then become just dirt under their shoe, all right? So the way that you land th- these people, like Lex Friedman does or Joe Rogan does, is by you know, not saying anything too critical, not saying anything too damaging, not really delving into the implications of what they're saying and doing. If we're going to have artificial intelligence, and apparently we are, it ought to be open, open to the world. That would help ensure that it's used for good and not evil. That was the idea. But as the years passed and Musk found himself preoccupied building a couple of enormous companies, SpaceX and Tesla, OpenAI got away from him. As of tonight, OpenAI is no longer open. It's not a nonprofit research project dedicated to using artificial intelligence to serve humanity. It is instead a commercial enterprise backed by Microsoft and controlled to some extent by the Democratic Party. Elon Musk thinks that's a problem. In fact, he believes it's a threat to human civilization, tantamount to maybe even more terrifying than thermonuclear weapons. The conversation you're about to see took place recently in a hotel room in Los Angeles. We think it's important enough that we're going to play the entire thing for you over the course of tonight and tomorrow. Here's how the conversation began. So all of a sudden, AI is everywhere. People who weren't quite sure what it was are playing with it on their phones. Is that good or bad? Yeah, so I've been um, thinking about AI for a long time, since I was in college, really. Um, 
because one of the things that the sort of four or five things I thought would really uh, affect the future uh, dramatically. It, it is fundamentally profound in that the, the the smartest creatures, as far as you know, on this. Okay, I've been reading the news, guys. I found out that the far right—that's us. All right, we're all far right here. The far right is being roiled by an underage grooming scandal. Did you know about this? Shocking, shocking stuff. All right, big tech on recent revelations that Nick Fuentes protected uh, alleged homosexual predator Ali Alexander. Sorry, Smiley's got to suck a dick. The Smiley's got to suck a dick. Smiley was 15 at the time. He was solicited by Ali Alexander for uh, pornographic Ali, materials. Ali, hey, if a couple Lances and a couple Smileys end up for the first time. Showing their dicks to Ali. Fog of war, collateral damage. Call me a bad guy. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me that that's unacceptable. At all costs, we must protect the dicks from having pictures taken of them. What's the worst thing that was going to happen? Smiley was going to suck a dick? Sorry, Smiley. That's a dick that you take for the team. Sorry, Smiley. We got a world to save here. We got total Aryan victory on the line. If Smiley's got to suck a dick, then Smiley's got to suck a dick. If Smiley's got to, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want it to be that way. But if that's what it takes to win, you're like presenting me a deal. You get total Aryan victory. I get uh, Smiley has to suck uh, Ali Alexander's dick. That's a hard choice. Sorry, Smiley. You might have to take this one for the team, bro. Wow, that's uplifting. Man, let's get something more elevated here. Let's get some wisdom from the Torah. Knew it from Betty Friedan's um, Feminine Mystique on. This is social suicide, and that's exactly what it's been. Well, you got a great compliment from Betty Friedan, and by the way, I'm not being facetious. She called you a chauvinistic pig, right? Piglet. Yes. I would take that as a badge of honor. Oh, I did. Well... I was in my 20s when I had a public dialogue with Betty Friedan. Wow. <laughs> and at one point, which is so fascinating, n- no man that I ever debated did this. She gets up and leaves the stage because she's so annoyed with me. And I'm polite. I didn't insult her. I- I'm polite to people I differ with. But, and, I- and I was half her, ha- half her age. But she-, she stormed off because of things that I said, I guess. Not I guess, because of things that I said. And said, you're a male chauvinist piglet. And these things never bother me. And all I did was continue talking. She left the stage, and I said, either she'll come back or she won't come back. I did nothing wrong, and she came back. That, by the way, I I knew the end of that story that she came back. That is so funny when people do that. They have this, like, dramatic storming off, but then they come back. It's so pathetic. By the way, because I'm I'm thinking about men and women and free will and our natures and all of this great stuff, you brought up your, your speeches. Which sex, in your experience, is more likely to get contentious and loud and angry, men or women? And I'm not just – I'm talking about the people with whom you debate. I'm also talking about people who ask you questions in the audience. Do you find that women are more likely to to call you names and hurl insults at you in your opinions or men? Or is it kind of 50-50? So I'm thinking – I don't want to give a glib answer. I see – it's not fully fair to use my speeches because they're not random samples of, of, of the population. So I don't have a male-female big distinction in the uh, that, that that I can think of offhand. However, if you watch what's going on in campuses or or in, in society generally, the screaming and ranting is more likely to be the female, but it is also much more likely to be uh, the left. Do you know how amazing I could be 
if I had an adoring 23-year-old co-host who just graduated from Harvard and thinks that I have, like, the keys to the universe, do you know what a, a, an incredible show I, I could put out? I mean, Dennis Prager is never so good, so open, so vulnerable, so compelling as when he's talking to Julie Hartman, who uh, does a, a regular podcast for Prager University. She sits in as a guest host for, for Dennis Prager, and she is just so adoring. And I've experienced a little bit of uh, female adoration in my time. I remember there was a, a small article about me in Rolling Stone back in 1999. And I remember there was this uh, young, there was this like teenage girl who like clipped it out and put it on her, her wall. And then, you know, eventually met me years later. So I have found that I perform much better, right? I have more interesting, more vulnerable things to say. I, I feel more powerful, more compelled, like more inspired when I, I'm talking to a beautiful young woman. And like Dennis Prager just comes, you know, alive in these clips. And just imagine what I could be, guys. All I need is my own Julie Hartman. So I have two sons, and you know, but not everybody listening or watching knows. And my younger son, his, uh, his mom, my ex-wife who has since passed away, we adopted him at birth. Literally the day he was born, we adopted him. We did not know that his birth mother was a meth addict. And that uh, played a role in his life. And he became addicted to alcohol and, and, and some drugs. And, and it was bad. It was a bad scene. It was a tragic scene. And thank God. See, I don't blame Dennis Prager because his son got addicted to drugs, to, to meth and, and to alcohol. Why don't I blame him? Because parenting doesn't matter that much. Now, it's kind of ironic if you build your life around teaching people right and wrong and you devote enormous energy and time and resources to teaching people how to raise kids to, to realize you know, how comparatively little parenting matters. All right. So if you're pushing how important it is to you know, raise good kids, you are hyping a lie, the lie being that uh, by adopting this strategy or that strategy, you can make a statistically measurable change in how your kids turn out. You can't, right? It's not Dennis Prager's fault that one kid you know, turned into a meth addict and a drug addict and an alcoholic and you know, finally got sober and seems to be got married, le leading a good life now, Aaron Henry Prager. And the other kid has always been just a beautiful, sweet kid. Uh, David Prager now works for Prager University, Orthodox Jew, married, four kids. All right, so one kid turned out sweet. One kid had a serious drug turd. And I don't think either had almost anything to do with anything that Dennis Prager did as, as a parent. Uh, and I, I don't know what else to say other than thank God, because this was right before fentanyl started killing so many young people, including uh, a friend of mine who's had a spectacular son and just poof, fentanyl did it. To the son. Yes, to the son. Yeah. Anyway, so my son is fine. He's sober. So he said to me a very interesting thing, because I, I, I have never been addicted and I had to learn and I learned an immense amount. You know what his biggest fear when he was becoming sober? And he used, he actually used this term. And then when you raised it just recently, it really triggered this memory. He said, it's hard for me to believe that there is such a thing as sober fun. I, I picture sobriety as boring, basically. I'm, I'm now putting words in his mouth. And I realize that represents a lot of people, not just addicts. The thought that if you're sober, or, and in the broadest sense, exercise self-control, you'll have a boring life. Uh, let me give one example. And then I, obviously I want you to explain to people why you raised the term with me independently of my son. So people think 
the following. I remember so vividly in high school and in college, especially college, I would say college, and, and you know, my peers would say to me, oh, man, huh, you think sex is, is something? You try it on, on, when you're high. And I swear to God, I remember my reaction. Wait a minute. Sex is not exciting enough? You need a high? And that's when it, uh, my eyes were opened to this eternal search for the more exciting. So what prompted you to raise that term? So I want to set the context first for the audience. I was over at Dennis's house last week uh, to have dinner with Dennis and his wife, Sue, and Robert Florzak, who I had on Timeless. He's this... He's so interesting. He, totally. He can make anything interesting. Correct. That is correct. By the way, shameless plug for the, uh, what's the, what's the episode called, Sean? The Art of Art, right? We, I had Robert on and I just asked him, what are five paintings that you think everyone my age should know? And we just talked about art. No politics. It was right. Anyway, I was over at Dennis's house. And before dinner, we uh, were sitting by your computer, or actually I came over to your computer to see what you were doing. And Dennis was on the internet looking at fountain pen colors. Remember that? Inks. 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 That's right. Inks. Sorry. And it was so it was marvelous, I have to say. The most beautiful colors of ink. What's the website called so people can look at it if oh, they want? Oh, anyway, just put in fountain pen inks and anything will come up. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I wanted to see what he was doing and I pulled up a, a chair and we were there for an hour just looking at, at uh, the beautiful array of colors uh, of the, the ink. And then you showed, we, we moved on into music and then you showed me, who's that, that the um, young piano? I would, uh, Julie, I would spend an hour with you looking at fountain pen ink on, on the internet. I, I think tens of thousands of men would be would be happy to do that now i always said no to drugs and alcohol because i knew i had an addictive personality even though i couldn't have put it in those terms so i've never had a problem with sober fun what i've had a problem with is just an inner emptiness and a needing you know a need to distract myself from reality and and from myself and i guess i still struggle with that in that i leave you know audible books running all night so that I don't have to be alone with my thoughts. But Julie's interesting. She claims that she had to do seven hours of homework a night during high school. So she was on swim team. So apparently she would train from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. daily and then get home about 5 and then do homework until 2 a.m. every night. And as a result of this commitment, and she got into Harvard, graduated from Harvard, as a result of this extreme commitment to getting ahead, she never developed any hobbies. So she struggles with finding sober fun right for her fun has to involve alcohol right how, how on earth do you feel like you're having fun you know if you're not buzzed so that's where her question is coming from pianist oh you Wang. oh my gosh this this young pianist it's first of all One sensational of the pianists. and second of all she's a hoot she goes uh, into these concerts and wears these like mini skirts truly mini yeah so anyway we were just it was really really fun and i turned to dennis in the middle of it and i said my god you really embody sober fun and I said, I don't know if I've really mastered having sober fun. And it's something that I've been trying to work on. Obviously, I just graduated from college uh, about a year ago. And in college, there was no... I mean, she's only 23, but she's particularly compelling because she is so open. Right? She's willing to be vulnerable here. Such thing as sober fun. I mean, anytime you were having fun, you were out at a party drunk. Actually, I'm going to amend that statement. I, did have, I, have, I had a lot of sober fun in my uh, suite with my roommates on a regular school night. But when you blocked off time to have fun on the weekends it was all it always involved drinking and when i graduated from college i i even though i'm unlike aaron thankfully i'm, I'm not an addict i worried if if i was going to be able to find sober fun because college was just a drinking palooza um and i will say sometimes it's hard because for me at least drinking helps me relax especially because i'm very hard on myself
Right. So I haven't listened to Dennis Prager consciously that, that I remember in about seven years. But these shows with, with Julie, because she's so brave, because she's so vulnerable, are particularly compelling. And I'm really enjoying it. And them. I always have that voice in my head that's saying, you're not working hard enough, you're not doing this, or you mess this up. So drinking helps me quell that voice. But then I look at you, and you're totally relaxed when you're looking at fountain pen ink. And I just, I kind of marveled at it, because you have trained your brain to find relaxation without the help of a substance. Our listeners know that we represent two very different generations. One. Okay. So, yeah, excellent stuff there from, from Julian Dennis. The appeal of what we're doing is back to your word real. And people are not used to it. See, I'll give you an example. Being a talk show host for 40 years, when I, the very first time I tried out and I got the job that night, it was very moving to me, obviously. I knew it was going to change my life and it did. So from the very beginning, I, I knew... I said to myself, and I was, I was 32 years old, 33, whatever, I always get it wrong, it doesn't matter. And I remember saying, you must talk normal. Because the great majority of talk show hosts, and, and these, these people overwhelmingly are interesting and bright. There's no, you can't, you can't be a dummy and have a talk show. It, it, it doesn't last. Maybe you could do it on dummy subjects, but, but not on serious subjects. Anyway, so it's not a knock on them. It's just... This is a. This is how I heard the average talk show. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Hey, what do you think? And I and I thought, but well, that's not how they talk when they're off off the air. So I decided I will. And it's here's the irony: it takes effort to be real. You you would think it's effortless because you're just you. Yeah. At the same time, Dennis, another speech talks about how his program directors kept pushing him. You have to put more energy in. You have to put more energy in. So the way Dennis Prager speaks on the radio is nothing like how he speaks in, in real life. He has to put five, ten times as much energy into his radio presentation. And he has to think hard to make every word, every sentence count. All right. So when he finishes a show, I remember when I worked in radio, when I finished my, my radio show, I'd just be absolutely wiped out, just absolutely exhausted. When he's finished with his radio show, he's absolutely wiped out. Is he absolutely wiped out after talking with friends, even, even for several hours over a Shabbat dinner? No, he's not, because this is a presentation. This isn't real. This isn't just regular conversation. This is a show. So he talks about being real, and I, I guess there's an large element of just self-delusion there he's talking about being real while he is making a presentation while he is putting on a show and the authenticity here is is packaged but especially if you do public work it takes a great deal of effort to make sure that you don't enter public forms of speech but speak real and obviously given my my success for which i am deeply grateful it worked and that's, that's what this is. You know me and I know you, and, and it's real. Just, I just wanted to say that because people should attempt to be real. You need, people need to monitor themselves. And I think people are afraid to be real because they think that if they're real, they won't be impressive. They will, uh, they will sound boring or, or whatever it is. It's an insecurity, I think. Yes, and because everyone... And this is not how Dennis and Julie speak in real life. Right? This is such delusion. Right? They have to be much more thoughtful. They have to put much more energy in, right? They have to present. They have to put on a show. This isn't just two people sitting around having a friendly chat. Apropos of the, the cheating thing, everyone else is fake. So if you're real, 
then you're the odd one out or you're not participating in, in the, right. the quote-unquote game. So well, anyway, so I, I remember as well something else I wanted to, I wanted sure. to raise. It's also about, it's, it's about uh, in this case, uh, yeah, PragerU. I just got this from Megan, who is the producer. Oh, she's, she's the best. She's terrific. She's the cutest baby. Yes, Riley. Boy, At, that's impressive. You remember the yes, name. Yes, that's true. No, no, not that impressive. It's impressive for me. Right? No, for, yes, for, for, yeah, for me. So listen to this that was just received with a donation to PragerU. I'm a psychotherapist who refers to and shares PragerU videos with my clients. They are a great aid in becoming mature and developing a healthy psychological perspective. If more people watched and absorbed material presented by PragerU, I would have to find another line of work. Okay, so I'm sure some people benefit from PragerU. You know, other people would be harmed by PragerU. The idea that uh, just watching PragerU you know, videos is going to just inherently steer people along a path towards mental health is just pure delusion. Right? It's just imagining that what you do is far more effective and far more important than what it is. Now, you know, having this heroic conception of yourself, having these delusions about yourself, having you know, some kind of grandiose conceptions of, of your work is probably adaptive. But in the end, this is not in reality. This is outside reality. This is hype and hyping contains a significant element of lying. By the way, that's that's exactly what I said. Well, not exactly, but see, I'm trying to be more precise with my language. Right. Because even though yep. it's not lying, it's, you know, anyway. Imprecise. Um, it is right. imprecise. That's what I said on your radio show when you had me on to talk about PragerU. I said, you know, obviously politically changed my life, but I think it's made me a healthier, happier person. This is, so this is what I want to address for a moment. Do you think any left-wing show or institution in America got a note like that from a therapist? No. I show your stuff, and it helps people become so mature and healthy, it would put me out of business if everybody saw it. Well, you know what? There's Okay. First of all, a, there's so much baked into that message. There's humility. There's admiration. There's uh, even the word mature. I don't think a, a psychoanalyst right. on the left would say, I want my clients to right. become... They would say, I want to liberate my clients or help my clients, you know, self-love or, you know, they... but. Or you understand can, how crappy their parents are. You can tell by the way that people write. You know, before we move on from the speaking thing, I, I have told you, and I've said on this this broadcast that um, when I first discovered you, I knew that we would be friends. I mean, I just I, I remember thinking this guy gets me. I get him. I would just if I ever met him, we would really hit it off. Um, clearly, I was right. <laughs> and of course, it was your values. But a big thing that really, really increased your credibility in my mind was your voice. Your voice made a big impression on me because I could tell that it was the way that you normally speak. Mm -hmm. You don't have, even on my show, and I think the way I speak on my show is 90% there of how I usually speak. I try to be more conscious of my diction and the way. Okay, so this idea that uh, no leftists improve anyone, right? Most psychotherapists are on the left. Most teachers are on the left. Most university professors are on the left. Most professionals are on the left. Most social workers are on the left. Most... Whole swaths of society are primarily on the left, and you don't think that uh, they help anyone, really? That you know, it's just people on the right. It's just you know, Prager University that makes people better. What does Prager think about you? Well, when he was asked in the Jewish Journal back in 2007, he said uh, he was never a friend nor a student. I think at one time I might have had a positive effect on his life, but now I don't know. That was. Some, some remark like that. That's what uh, Dennis Prager said when I was profiled in the Jewish Journal back in 2007. Um, that I pronounce words. But sometimes broadcasters will like slow down. They'll, they'll be like, we'll get to that in just one moment. But like they'll kind of like have a certain cadence. And I'm even trying to get rid of something like that because 
that isn't exactly my real voice. Anyway, you, the way that you speak, which is no different on air as off air, makes a huge, huge, huge impression. Um, well, good. I, I, I'm happy to hear it, and I, and I know that. Oh, you want to say something else? Because I want to get back to this, no, the, the, this the, message. No, I was going to say that person is so oh, – you can tell the way that people write, of too. No, no leftist, I'm sorry, would have that much humility and praise and modesty and admiration baked into that well, message. Well, you, you pick it all up, and you picked up the word mature. Oh, that, yes. Mature is a conservative word. That's a great subject. I am going to write a column on words that only conservatives We've use. talked about this. We, we did? Oh, yeah. We talked about this, and I, I'm ashamed that we never followed up with it. We were going to, together, come up with a list of words and also come up with, like, if you see someone on the street, how can you tell if they're conservative or not with the, what they wear or the way that they carry themselves? Oh, well, that's interesting. I yeah. Okay. This is, this is much more sensitive. This is a motto of mine. Husbands and wives should make love outside the bedroom. Oh, my God. I can't believe you're saying this. And on the have air. sex inside the bedroom. The, it, re it really does show how, how open we are. Oh, the, the, yes, it, it, exactly. It's true. I don't think we hide almost anything. We, we, we really right. don't hide anything. Well, we did say well, that. Well, we, we assume that people who can handle reality are listening. Yes. And, and if they can't handle reality, and a lot of people can't, uh, then this might help them. Okay, so it, just, it is what it is. But there is a, there is a time for uh, male strength to truly assert itself uh, in, in, the, in the realm of the purely sexual. Uh, I think that for most women, that's a turn on. Outside the bedroom, if he uh, he he should be loving and kind, and and that and that has nothing to do with weak. Right. No man should think that. It's 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 an absurdity if if you reach out and, and hug your wife, or just tell her you love her regularly. I mean, it doesn't render you weak. I just want to cut in. I'm doing this to protect you. I want to clarify because I know what Dennis means. But uh, the Young Turks listen to. I know the Young Turks and that woman. What's her name? Anna Karen. I always want to call her Anna Karenina. Anna, Anna Kasparian. When you say men outside the bedroom are you should be loving it. You, you all. I mean, of course, you also mean. That inside the bedroom they should. Yes, be. but it I is know a what time you're saying. for both sexes I... to also be animals. Okay, the, the sex act is not in. Okay, so I'm going to quote a guy named Stoller. I don't remember his first name. He was a brilliant UCLA psychiatrist, brilliant. And I read his book maybe 30 years ago. And I I do not have a memory for lines or names. I have a memory for concepts. But I memorized a line of his from his book because when I read it, I just was blown away. The human species is not a very loving species especially when making love so it was dennis prager invoking robert stoller and that comes i think from robert stoller's book the dynamics of sexual excitement that uh, led me to read the works of robert stoller the late ucla psychiatrist and two of robert stoller's books were about the pornography industry so i was reading a whole bunch of robert stoller books on dennis prager's recommendation and i thought oh I could write a book on the pornography industry too. So that's how I transitioned from being a Prager aficionado to writing a book on the pornography industry. And then that led to writing a, an ongoing blog on the industry. And uh, I, I'm a big fan of uh, the late Robert Stoller, interesting uh, psychiatrist. So that was some pretty thoughtful analysis there, I think, by, by Dennis. And it had a big effect on my life. Wow. Robert Stoller. Yes, Robert Stoller very honest that so by the way that doesn't bother me it doesn't scare me i like to know reality and then live with it the very act i mean i hope kids aren't watching but uh, the the very act is not exactly a subtle act the, the, right the, the, this you know this throbbing and pushing and uh, it's which is fine i mean if you can allow the that animal part of you to have some expression obviously there are times it's just loving of course it, it, but it has to run the gamut we are we're in God's image and an animal's image. That's that's one of, that's one of my deepest views of the human condition. And you, if if you can allow the animal its time, 
within within loving conditions. Of course. Then you you hit pay dirt. Right. And it's funny because. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analysis there by by Dennis. Inspired by the late great Robert Storer. Well, yes, I mean, I I, I was divorced twice, and anyone everyone who divorces, I think, thinks they're a failure, even mm-hmm. if it's not if not it's not your fault. And and the first one was mutual. The second one, they were both mutual, but the second one, I know, I worked my tail off to make it work uh, for a long time. It was seventeen years. I mean, and I, I was up against an insoluble dilemma because she she's passed away, and she's the mother of my second child, and. Uh, she she had been uh, sexually abused by a relative as a child, mm-hmm. and the, the the amazing thing it seems to have Issue, issues in her previous marriage. If I, you don't mind me asking, oh, I, you could ask, but I don't know the answer because I I I, I, I never posed the question to the ex, mm-hmm. her, her ex husband. But did you pose? No, not about, not about the G. It's blossom is a bad word, but it came to fruition. Blossom is a bad word, but it came to fruition. The bad, but it came to fruition. The bad, the bad things. Anyway, it, it, that's not here or there. I, I'm just saying. Anyone who divorces thinks that, that they have failed, obviously. I, I will say, even having obviously, I, I will say, even having said that, I I did this on the radio. I do most things, I believe, on the radio to get feedback from people. That it is better to marry and divorce than never to marry. I, I profoundly believe that you become a better person. So the glitching there was in the original. Uh, that that wasn't me. But uh, Dennis talks about it. It's done like five times in his life that he's cried. And one of them was when he made the announcement on his happiness hour. So Friday show, second hour, he made the announcement that uh, he was getting a divorce from, from Fran, his second wife. Her first husband was also Jewish, but he, he was a secular Jew. So Dennis was married about 17 years to his, his second wife. And yeah, very vulnerable there. It's you can, you, know, you can you can feel the pain. Either we'll get to or not. But uh, and I have always had. I, I don't. I never had a female friend. I, I was married before. The, my, my, you know, sue my current wife. Current wife. That's hilarious. Sue my wife. Current and permanent. I, I should. To <laughs> I gotta say, when you just yeah, said that's that, pretty funny. I, I, I know. My current wife is. Who knows what will happen? No, no, no. It, it, Oh, I only said it because I, I have been married before. Yes, okay. yes. So uh, she's my best friend. but uh, and, and that's the ideal, that your best friend you're married to. But other than that, I've, other than a wife, I've never had a female friend. Uh, but actually, you're, you're really, in effect, my first. Wow. I'm that, honored. That is a big deal. Wow. We ne- we've never thought of this before. You're right. Knowing what I know I'm about your of, life, yeah, that's I'm true. I'm shocked. Holy mackerel. Wow. You know, did you ever hear of Holy Mackerel, by the way? Is this uh, yes, I have, but, but so you know, you know what where its origin? I'll tell no. you where, because Catholics didn't eat meat on Fridays. So mackerel oh. was a fish, and, and therefore it was called Holy Mackerel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm a bad Catholic. Yeah. In, another interesting little segment there from the show. And that's something so profound to, to tell you. And I've forgotten. So, onward the show. Everything. What college you got into, what the size of your house, the you know, the purported success of your children. And what I appreciate about conservatives your IQ. Your IQ. What I appreciate about the conservatives I've met, not saying everyone, because they're religious, they have that understanding of what you said about that man who has a rich life. Oh, uh, so Dennis Prager also talked about crying when he left the Soviet Union out of empathy for the suffering that he saw there. How often do I cry? So I think my tears over the past twenty years would not fill a teaspoon. So I've shed like 
an occasional tear. Maybe had a hard time manufacturing more than one and two. Uh, so very, very, very rare in the last uh, 20 years. I so I have an about. interesting proof for you. You'll love yes. this. You will love this. So you know that Dr. Marmor, whom we spoke of, Alan Estrin, my producer, and the guy who came up with PragerU, and I, the three of us, founded a synagogue in Los Angeles. And I have said to people, even this, it had a previous incarnation as part of a, a different synagogue. Now it's independent. So I said this then. So I used to attend it in, during its previous incarnation. It was the Mountaintop Minion at Stephen S. Wise. It was my synagogue from 1994 to 1998. And I only hear good things about what uh, Prager, Dr. Marmer, and Alan Estrin have done with their, their new synagogue. Like Dennis Prager does you know, genuinely radiate happiness, joy. He's a pleasure to be around. He does light up a room. He's attracted you know, a crowd of you know, very happy, very impressive people. And he has built a beautiful community. So you know, I tip my yarmulke. To, to Dennis. I said, do you know the only place, because the left talks about uh, you know, the the working class and all people are, should be involved in equity and, and nobody's better than anyone, and all of that is fine. But there is really only one place I know of where your income, prestige, success financially, professionally, doesn't mean anything at my synagogue. I would say, and these people spend a lot of time together, they're there from nine to two on Saturday. Nine is study with Dr. Marmer, then, then an hour of prayer. And this is this is true. I, I would attend. And this was like my family when my regular family was in Australia. I'm trying to find my way in Los Angeles. And this these, these were very happy years, in, in large part to the community that Dennis Prager built. So Mordecai Finley started this minion. Then uh, Dennis Prager, Alan Estrin, Stephen Marmer took it over and built something beautiful. Prayer, then they have me. Uh, for giving a talk and, and, and Alan giving a briefer talk and then they have lunch and at lunch I, 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 I run the, the, the grace after meals and then I interview somebody I interviewed you once they're with each other a lot I would say that the vast majority of people seeing each other every single week for years don't know what they do for a living isn't that isn't that equity yeah that's the ultimate right, that's the it, and it's the only place you it's only in a religious setting that that could happen that's what people don't get they don't get look e e I know I'm not foolish. They, they look. I'm a public figure. Of course, they all know what I do and they know my life. Okay, but still, in all, more than anything else, I'm Dennis. I'm, you know, I, I lead the grace after meals. I mean, it's not exactly a prestigious act to, to lead the seven-minute Hebrew uh, a prayer. Uh, anybody, literally anybody who knows Hebrew can do it. But uh, everybody is. So he's really good at leading Bacada Mazon, the, the grace after meals. Like he does bring joy and happiness. There's communal singing. There's great rhythm. It's it is a you know a highlight of the week. He, he really truly did create something beautiful. He he's built a beautiful community. It was you know wonderful to be a part of it. Some of my happiest memories were being a part of this synagogue that Dennis Prager helped shape. Like that, do you know that one of the most respected members of the synagogue when he speaks, everybody pays attention because the guy is truly brilliant. He he runs a pipe fitting company. And I'll bet you 90% of the people at the, at, the, at the service don't even know that. If I said to them, oh, well, you know Boris, that's his name. He's a guy who came from Russia. I go, you know Boris, uh, he's a professor of philosophy at UCLA. Oh, they go, oh that makes perfect sense. No, no, Boris runs, runs a, pipe, a pipe company. You know, when I uh, realized my conservative instincts, when I would hear people talk about 
those conservatives in the South or blue collar work or, you know, the way that people on the left and specifically privileged people on the left paint conservative blue collar people as uh, primitive or not smart or hicks. I would think you have no idea. They, oh, they have no you idea. have no idea how that, much smarter ninety nine percent of those people are than you. Right. And 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 how much more uh last night Sue and, and interesting. I, my wife and I had dinner with a Mormon electrician. He's our electrician. This guy runs rings in clarity about life around every professor I had at Columbia. He's an electrician. And by the way, the Mormons do a good job at this because he the, every position there is lay. So there's no ordained clergy in, in, in the Mormon LDS church. So this guy was a bishop. He served as a bishop, which is a big title in, in, in your community. And, and he's an electrician. Who I don't care. They don't care. He doesn't care. And, and it's only available within religion. That's where truly yep, we're true. all God's children. Have a nice day. And I, I, I love that fact. Now, it's not only available in, in religion. There are all sorts of completely secular clubs where you'd get the same sort of camaraderie in Europe and in Australia or pubs and bars and, and shops, uh, service organizations. But in America, all right, America is so efficient in its economics, so ruthless in its economics. People are so mobile that people yearn for an imitation of traditional country life where people would, you know, grow up, marry, work, you know, and die in the, within... The, the same 10 miles, all right? And so Americans in particular, you know, yearn for some kind of imitation of traditional rural life, and that's what they get in church or, or in synagogue. So that's major reason why religion in America is so widespread and also thin, because it's a tremendous source of comfort. It, it provides the, the benefits of community for Americans who only usually experience a very pale imitation of the kind of community that many Australians and Europeans just take for granted. There's a couple there, I won't say more than this, that uh, there, there are more than one couple, but not, not many, uh, whom uh, uh, we, we, we help financially, let me put it that way. We meaning Pragers or yes, the synagogue? Yes, the Pragers, no, not the synagogue. The Pragers and so do, so, so do the Estrins and so on. Nobody knows it. Nobody has a clue. And there's no reason for them to have a clue. But I'm just saying it goes from people who need help when, when I needed help, Dennis Prager lent me $60, and uh, I, I paid him back, but he really was there. He really does help people. He is an incredibly generous man. And I, I remember when I'd go to the synagogue, he would, he would fundraise for people who needed help, and sometimes he would make mistakes and fundraise for, for people who turned out to be absolute jerks, and he would come to regret it. So you would often say that, you know, the worst things he's ever done are the things that he did out of kindness. And uh, perhaps, you know, he might even class, you know, befriending Luke, you know, in, in those, those mistakes. And I don't mean that in the sense of a real friendship. I mean, you know, helping acquaintanceship. So you tell me, okay, here's an example. So I've had a, a radio talk show, a syndicated one. I've been on radio for four years, but it's syndicated for 24 years. That entire time, or virtually, either virtually the entire time or the entire time, I was on national radio at the exact same time Rush Limbaugh was. Rush Limbaugh, for future generations, was was the most successful talk show host uh, in America for a good quarter of a century. And it was my luck, or non-luck, to be up against him at the hours, which were noon to 3 Eastern time, 9 to 12 Pacific time, 
And he had way more income, way more stations. I had hundreds, but he had three times as many. And, and income-wise, I would say he earned 20 times, 30 times more than I did. Interestingly, it never bothered me. In the eyes of those who, who, who check off these things, I wasn't a failure. I mean, how, very few people have a national radio show. There may have been three of us at that hour in all of America. So if you're one out of 100 million people doing something, you're not a failure. I, and, and by the way, that's what I, I would explain to myself. I wish I had his audience. I never thought, oh, I wish I had his income. I was never driven, ever driven by money. I probably should have been more so, but I wasn't. But I wish I, I always want to talk to more people because I have very good things to say. And I want, to, I want people to hear them. But uh, so you tell me, was in my profession, not in my life, that's, I wasn't a failure. Was I somewhat of a failure? No. Oh, it seems odd to you even yes. to ask it? Well, look at what you said a few minutes ago when you said most people would not consider your right. you know, that's failing why I'm saying, at improv. So not, not, not right, but compared to him, I wasn't a success. Right. Well, compared to my other people on the team, I, I mean, I wasn't a success, but I was still at Harvard and you're still on national radio. I mean, I don't view that okay, as a failure. Okay, so, okay. I view uh, that as your number two. They're, 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 right. <laughs> Which is okay, no, maybe in our right. eyes is a failure. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. Right, But I understand your, your, funny, your funny line. So did I ever experience failure? Let's go back to that. Well, yes, I'll tell you. My, I, I can't believe I didn't answer this. I was thinking professionally. Well, yes, I mean, I, I, I was divorced twice. And it's right. I've never seen Dennis Prager exhibit envy, right? E envy is, is not something that uh, takes him over. So, you know, he, he would have, you know, very cordial relations when he'd run into Rush Limbaugh at events. Like, Dennis Prager is not the type of bloke who's, you know, just eaten up by someone who's more successful than he is. Laponia says, $60, wow, generous. I would lend you at least 100 Bro, this was... This was 25 years ago when $60 was $60, right? And uh, Luke Croft says, do I consider myself an American or an Australian-American? I don't really think about it. So sometimes I'm sure I think of myself as an American. Sometimes I think of myself as a Jew. Sometimes, uh, in particular, an Orthodox Jew. Sometimes I think of myself as a blogger, a writer, a live streamer, a historian, a scholar of the human condition, a hiker, an Aussie. Right, uh, a, a brother, a sister, a lover. I should probably stop. Uh, someone in my life who was liberal, not left, liberal. Uh, it was a major, uh, major. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I don't want to give it away at all who this might be. And I asked him, "Have you ever heard of Jordan Peterson?" No. And have you ever heard of? Uh, and I just went through the list of the finest conservative minds that no I know of. They had, did not, have never heard of one of them. I never. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, one of the, the finest conservative minds. I, I'm surprised they didn't say Dave Rubin. All right. It, it's indicative of, of shallowness. All right. This is Paul Gottfried's got a very powerful critique of, uh, of Dennis Prager that I will. I will share with you in a minute. I never heard of you prior to Prager. I just Googled what do conservatives think about police, and thank God Prager U has a very robust advertising push, but I had never heard of you prior to that. That's right. Well, or I would, Jordan, I, I, no one. Yeah, well, or any of us. Exactly correct. It, it, it's, but we heard of all of theirs. I know. Well, because it's... All right, so what are your three? Okay, so, so the first one was principled, but I, but I wrote under it what I mean by that, and I said, you need to have a higher set of values, parentheses, truth, that you subordinate yourself to. I think this is so important. This is what religion used to provide for people. There were certain things that you placed above yourself, and you followed, regardless if it personally... Okay, this is Paul Godfrey's critique of Dennis Prager, which I think is uh, fair and accurate. He says, I think Dennis Prager is an intellectual vulgarian of a kind I have rarely encountered in this world. 
He has said such ridiculous things about history, fascism, democracy, and so forth, that it is hard for me to bestow any respect on his intellectual accomplishments. And I think that's a pretty fair critique from a genuine intellectual, Paul Gottfried. Where does Jordan, it come from? I'll tell you no. where, because Catholics didn't eat meat on Fridays. Oh, so mackerel was a fish, and, and therefore it was called holy mackerel. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm a bad Catholic. I eat, I eat meat every day. If I don't eat meat every day, I feel faint. Oh, I think meat is the healthiest food there is, but that's, I got that from Segway. Jordan Peterson. Segway, right. <laughs> hey, he got that. He got that wisdom from Jordan Peterson. Like, he, like Jordan Peterson, the one who, you know, had that massive benzodiazepine addiction that he's never really come to terms with. And, and Dennis takes, you know, diet advice from Jordan Peterson, who took it from Michaela Peterson. And I'm sure that uh, meat is absolutely important to a diet. Uh, also is vegetables and salad and, you know, all sorts of different things. So I remember there were years where Dennis Prager would talk about, oh, I've learned that only fat makes you fat. And so as long as you control your fat intake, you can control your weight, is what he would say publicly. And then he would be a big proponent of the zone diet. And now, you know, meat is the healthiest food around. So he has an inexhaustible inexhaustible river of ideas right exactly so i'm your first so friend yes Great. so yes so now let's so let's continue here because of the the proximity to the very present moment so i met this magnificent uh, woman in uh, denmark when i when i gave a speech there a couple of months ago and sue and i just fell in love with her and we invited her to stay with us and she is staying with us so she's never been to america before and she is exactly as terrific as we assumed and I thought, I don't even know if I mentioned this to Sue or not, but I was thinking, I really, really want her to meet Julie. You mean when you were in Denmark? Or, or when I invited her. Oh, yeah, when right, I knew she right. was going to come here. And I thought, in knowing them, knowing you so long, and knowing her minimally, but thinking I knew her well and I was right, it was, I said to Sue, it was inconceivable to me that you guys wouldn't hit it off. Am I right? You're right. We just have certainly hit it off. We had such a fun morning this morning. We went driving around Beverly Hills because even though it was so funny because in the car we were talking about very intellectual, deep things, but we were driving around like Rodeo Drive. I was giving her a celebrity tour because in addition to being deep people, we also have a hint of shallowness and that we both like the Real Housewives franchise. In fact, when I met Astrid yesterday, Astrid said to me, one of the first things she said to me was, okay, a little bit more kernel of wisdom. Why don't they take it? Well, this will sound pompous, but it's is it not, just in their nature not to take it? Sorry, they I, I, I don't, cut you off. They don't want to take it. Yeah. So, uh, this is not a. This is something I would only say on Dennis and Julie is a good example because I'm saying it to you and not, uh, and I'm not alone just announcing it. If if when I read and there are many people who hate my guts, uh, you just explore the internet and you'll find it, and and I think, I it has no effect on me, none whatsoever, as you know. And none, my, by right. the way, none. Thank Truly, I, I thought right. maybe it would have 1% effect right. on you. It doesn't. Yeah, correct. But it does tell me about them. So people who have to announce, and this is something that Dennis often says, and my father would always say this, you know, criticism just rolls off me like water off a duck's back. Dennis is always talking about how criticism just doesn't affect him. All right. If you have to put so much energy, so much repetition my father would say it thousands of times that criticism never bothers him. Dennis Prager will say it thousands of times that criticism never bothers him. Doesn't quite ring true. It, I, I, it doesn't tell me about you if you disagree with me. But if you hate me, it doesn't tell me anything about me. It tells me everything about you. 
I know that I aim to do good and do good. There are there are very many people who have better marriages because of my male female hour. There are many. Yeah, uh, he does aim to do good, right? He believes that he's a vessel for God, and he devotes himself to teaching people right and wrong, in large part trying to teach parents how to raise good kids. But that's a delusion, or the evidence suggests that parents don't really make that much of a difference within the normal range of parenting. All right, there's no parenting style that sh shows you know empirical results. So there are lots of delusions that fill you with strength and power and grandiosity and give you the energy to get all sorts of things accomplished. So this is probably an adaptive delusion. Many happier people because of my happiness book, happiness lectures and happiness hour. There are many people who, who have reconciled with their parents because they heard me. Okay, how many leftists who hate my guts can say that? Zero, zero. How many people are kinder because they were influenced by a leftist? Zero. That's absolute nonsense. All right, there are plenty of great left-wing uh, therapists, uh, social workers, people in helping professions, teachers. Most teachers are left-wing. You don't think any teacher has helped anyone to become kinder? I, I had a teacher, my journalism advisor at Placer High School, Robert Burge, and he helped me calm down. He helped me to be a better man. He was on the left. I've had, I've had been positively influenced by many people on the left. Not, on, not only that, but how many people are angrier. That's right. Less grateful. Yes. Unhealthier. Right. All of that. When you're... Okay. So let's get a uh, different perspective here from one of the greatest thinkers of the modern here. age. So what's the use of a pundit or a live streamer or a commentator or someone who explains what's going on in the world around us? Right? There's just so many complications around us. It helps to have someone who can give you a model for... You know, understanding what's happening, who can take you know, buzzing confusion and simplify and clarify it. So, for example, during all the Russiagate controversy with Donald Trump, whenever I try to study that issue, I just get a headache. And so it helped to have someone like uh, John Mearsheimer give a simple model that it just doesn't matter. <laughs> like, okay, you know, I really tried to understand Russiagate and the Russia collusion accusations against Donald Trump. And it was the obsession with the news media, but it just had no importance and had to turn to a political scientist like John Mearsheimer to ex explain it. So uh, climate change, incredibly complicated topic. Right, like what to make all the different competing claims. And so one, one pundit who seems useful to me is a scientist, Bjorn Lomberg. I just don't know enough if he's, if he's good, but from the tiny little bit that I know, he seems to you know, provide a little bit of clarity and a sense of proportion to this incredibly difficult, challenging, complicated matter. Now, a, a pundit or a live streamer or a stand-up comic or you know, radio personality or a columnist I think they're important to the extent that they can help you to see things that you otherwise wouldn't see. So guys, if indeed we're in the middle of a non-shooting civil war here in the United States, like someone like Dennis Prager, it's very important to bring, you know, bring that to the forefront of our attention. Guys, we're in a civil war. If indeed we are in civil war, which I do not believe, uh, if we, we are becoming more like Nazi Germany with every day, as Dennis Prager says, then if that's true, that's something important to know, and Dennis Prager is providing an incredibly valuable service. But like a good comic, right? They help you to see all sorts of things that are happening in life that you couldn't quite put your, your finger on. So Steve Saylor is useful as a pundit. Like, why do some uh, minority groups or sexual orientation groups, like, why do they get more Pokemon points than others? And so when you have a clash between, say, lesbians and male to female transgenders, like, how come the male to female transgenders generally win and the lesbians are the bad people? Like, how do you know, you know, which groups have the most Pokemon points so that when there's a clash between different groups, you know who's who's going to win according to the, the powers that be, according to our institutions and conventional mainstream news media. So Steve Saylor's just invaluable. Uh, how has the world changed since George Floyd? Right? We've had an astronomical increase in murder. 
and in driving deaths and pedestrian deaths as we have incentivized the police to step back from policing. Right? So Steve Saylor presents this really simple explanation which is just far more useful and powerful than you know, all the other competing explanations for what's happening with the world around us. So I think I get more wisdom, more profundity, like more useful explanations, more sophisticated you know, top-down models for how the world works from Steve Saylor's blog than any other source. So then the other thing that a pundit or a personality, a comic, a public figure, a public intellectual can do is they can give you more sophisticated bottom-up models to you know, help you understand what's going on inside of you. So I've been doing a lot of research on anxiety and there were some great Doc Snipes videos, so D-O-C-S-N-I-P-E-S, Doc Snipes YouTube channel on anxiety. That the anxiety is basically we're in fight, flight, freeze, and we have this elevated response to threat. And when our anxiety is debilitating, we have an elevated response to threat that's out of proportion to the reality of the situation that we're in. And she made some really simple explanations that helped me understand anxiety. So I got more sophisticated bottom-up models to understand myself. So that was really helpful. Then there are people who just embody a calm or an ease or just a more adaptive approach to life. And it's not in anything they say. It's not necessarily in their top-down models or their bottom-up models or their comedy. It's just in who... Yeah, you can embody an ease with yourself and therefore transmit an ease with reality, with being challenged, with being wrong with oh my god i just totally made a, a fool of myself all right and if you can transmit a little bit of that ease then yeah you're a vessel for god or a vessel for reality all right just substitute the word reality for god if you get tired of of god talk so if you can be at ease with yourself the stupid things that you've done the terrible things that you've done the harmful things that you've done the you know destructive ways that you try to navigate reality the things where you're just completely blind on where you oh you recognize someone else oh you know they're far more correct than you are they're far more profound they're far more wise they have a far more effective approach to, to something if you can be at ease with being fallible and human yeah you can be a vessel for reality and maybe help other people just uh, have a more effective efficient uh, relationship to themselves and to other people and you can do it without any profound theology or philosophy or political science. So there is a very important book along these themes, The Nurture Assumption, Why Children Turn Out the Way They Do, by the late Judith Rich Harris. And intellectual Carol Tavris wrote about this book in the New York Times. And Carol notes, first, researchers have been unable to find any child-rearing practice that predicts children's personalities, achievements, or problems outside the home. So Dennis Prager devotes his life to teaching people right and wrong, teaching people how to raise good kids, but there's absolutely no empirical foundation for what he does. Now, it's intoxicating, it's empowering, it's energizing, it's prestigious, it makes money. Like, there are all sorts of fantastic things that come from believing something that's just plain wrong that's a lie. Right? Parents don't have a single child-rearing style anyway, because how parents treat their children depends on situations. It depends in part on what children are like. What depend determines what children are like? Situations. Right? Dennis Prager grew up with natural charm and charisma, so other people were attracted to him, which then helped produce more energy in him, with more energy, he was able to achieve more and be even more charismatic and charming, which then attracted more people into his life. And it's a positive cycle. Other people I know are just incredibly awkward and off-putting. Other people avoid them. They become isolated. They lack energy. 
So they are low in accomplishment, right? They are low in charisma. They are low in effectiveness. They are low in happiness. And they're just, you know, stuck in a downward spiral. So I've had times in my life where people are just like excited to see me, where I, I light up a room, where I enhance people's lives. And when I have those sort of interactions, I get more energy. You know, I get more of a sense of, of power and drive and passion and happiness when I have those things going on, then I get into a positive cycle. On the other hand, I've had times in my life where people just start avoiding me. I've been isolated. I've said the wrong thing. I've lost friends, such as when I started writing you know, some critical comments about Dennis Prager. I lost every single friend that I had in Los Angeles. So my first four years in Los Angeles, right, my family was the mountaintop minion that I went to with uh, Dennis Prager and company. And when I started writing online about uh, Dennis Prager's radio shows and made you know some critical comments along with plenty of positive comments, I'm not someone who's saying, oh, Dennis Prager, bad guy. I've got some criticisms. I've got some praise, some observations. I'm like to strive to try to be fair with, with Prager, with myself, with everyone I meet. But when I did that, I lost every single friend I had in Los Angeles. So I was absolutely bereft. And then I accidentally fell down when I was playing football and I just felt so lonely and lost. I walked to the hospital for my uh, wrist surgery. I, I, I could have turned to people that had just entered my life recently. And there was a woman I was seeing. I could have turned to her. But now I went on my own. Then the hospital didn't want to release me. So they kept me in overnight because they didn't want to release me to a taxi ride home. <laughs> and I was so bereft that when I was waiting in line for pain relieving medication which i never ended up using there was this gypsy who tapped me on the shoulder and said i'm getting a special feeling about you so i ended up visiting this gypsy dropping over 900 dollars on her like pouring out my heart telling her my my problems because i was you know in a very downward spiral i got kicked out of two of my favorite synagogues you know i lost all the friends i had in common with dennis prager uh because of my online activities because of my blogging uh i'd started up a website dennisprager.net which I thought, you know, I, I put uh, you know, on every page, this is not an official Dennis Prager you know, website. It was just a commentary on Dennis Prager's radio show, but people couldn't distinguish it from what Dennis Prager was putting out. So I just gave the domain to Dennis Prager and forwarded it into lukeford.net. So I was blogging about Dennis Prager. I was blogging about Hollywood. I was blogging about the pornography industry and lost all my friends, lost my community, lost my synagogues and that was very difficult time i went into therapy i'd have two sessions every friday morning and you know through that pain it 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 uh, really really shook me up and uh, I, I don't think i was probably radiating a lot of joy d during those years so situations my dear boy situations so back to the New York Times, even when parents do treat their children the same way, the children still turn out differently, right? The majority of children of troubled or even abusive parents are resilient and they do not suffer lasting psychological damage, all right? Most children of abusive parents do not suffer lasting psychological damage. Conversely, many children of the best, kindest, most nurturing parents succumb to drugs, mental illness, and gangs. There is no correlation, zero between the personality traits of adopted children and their adoptive parents or other children in the home. Right? If home environment had an influence, right, you would see a correlation between personality traits of adopted children and those of their adoptive children or other children in the home. You would see some statistically relevant results from parenting styles. There's none. 
there's there's no evidence there may be there may be you know statistically verifiable results from parenting but we don't have any evidence for it yet right if if home environment had an influence you'd see some correlation between adoptive adopted children and their adoptive parents and other children in the home but we don't have any evidence of that so how children are raised whether they're raised in daycare or at home whether they're raised with one parent or two whether they're raised with gay parents or straight parents with an employed parent or a parent who stays home has very little influence on children's personality so what children parents do with their children whether they read to their children take them to the opera what parents do for their children right that affects children when they are with their parents just like a rubber boy you can make an imprint but when kids then get away from their parents they do their own thing so mothers influence their children's play only while the children are playing with their mothers right when the child is playing alone or with a playmate makes absolutely no difference whatsoever whatever games he played with mum so the first problem with the nurture assumption is nature right the findings of behavioral genetics show incontrovertibly that our personality traits and abilities have a significant genetic component now genes explain only about half of the variation in people's personalities and abilities what's the other half All right so judith rich harris's brilliant stroke here is to change the discussion from nature genes and nurture parents to its older version heredity and environment and environment is broader than nurture it's broader than parents children like adults have two environments they have their home environment the world outside their home their behavior like ours changes depending on the situation that they are in many parents know the eerie experience of having their child's teacher describe their child in terms they don't recognize my kid did what i didn't raise you to do that children who fight with their siblings may be placid with friends they can be honest at home and deceitful at school or vice versa at home children learn how their parents want them to behave and what they can get away with but these patterns of behavior are not like albatrosses that we just drag with us wherever we go or through our lives. We don't even drag them out the door, right? Once we are out the door, we speak and behave as we want. Who they are, how they speak, how they interact, how they deal with criticism and pressure. So you can you can imbibe like more adaptive ways of living, like calmer, more effective, more efficient. Uh, happier ways of approaching things approaching conflict uh, dealing with other people dealing with difficult situations dealing with yourself dealing with a confusing world around you like some people can just embody a, a sense of ease and calm and efficiency and effectiveness and uh, a sense of humor and uh, joy and so that can be incredibly powerful so if you feel like you're on a mission from god right, that can be an incredibly powerful thing a powerful trip to be on so you know teaching god's will for us but what preachers and pundits offer you know they're here to teach us god's will and like what can be more important than communicating god's will to us Right? My, my father devoted his life to teaching salvation. So if salvation to the next world, eternal life in the next world, is dependent upon you know, assenting to the belief that Jesus died for your sins on a cross 2,000 years ago, then yeah, that is the most important thing in this world. Right? If the most important thing in this world is to get that guaranteed ticket to the next world where you can live forever, live in bliss, live with your, your family and your friends and your loved ones and be forever with God, just rocking it out in heaven, there's absolutely nothing more important. And so that mission would fill my father with tremendous passion and joy and helped him you know, overcome all shortcomings and setbacks in his life because you know he had a mission from god and dennis prager is another person who feels like he has a mission from god so the mission from god man provides you with strength and energy and power and purpose and usually community and uh, you know reasons to go on living on the other hand a mission from god is not really a falsifiable thing so you could spend your entire life on something that has no basis in reality now 
there is a falsifiable thesis if you claim, like, I think Dennis Prager would claim the most important belief you can have is ethical monotheism, that God, the prim primary demand of you is that you behave ethically, that you are good to the rest of his creation. And so that Okay, question in the chat. If I could change one thing about myself, what would it be? Uh, that uh, human connection is still somewhat of a foreign language for me. And I don't really like negotiating <laughs> relationships and like getting together with people. Like I excessively want things on my own terms. So yeah, there's still like a little bit of awkwardness there. It's uh, significantly diminishing as the years go by, but still a little bit of residual awkwardness with normal human connection and an excessive desire to have interaction on my own terms like you know, I do when I can do this this show. Did I respond to any Nigerian princes when I was down? No. No, I spent $900 on a gypsy, but she was not a prostitute. There was no sex involved. But yeah, that was the rock bottom of my apricot sky. Very dark times there in January, February, March, April of 1998. I remember when I was talking to my best friends in L.A. in December of 1997, I told them I wanted to write about Dennis Prager's show. I was tired of writing about the pornography industry. And one good friend told me, if you write about Dennis Prager, I will never speak to you again. And that is exactly what happens. That's exactly what happened. Absolutely makes sense to me, except I found in my life that uh, Ali Alexander bowing away from public life. So I found in my life that the big, sophisticated, top-down models really don't matter that much. Uh, so Claire, you asked me earlier, I think it was you, you know, how does belief in God lead to mental health? And just from my own empirical life experience, belief in God doesn't seem to make that, seems to make virtually no difference in most people who believe or don't believe. But, but where I do notice a difference is if people believe that God wrote the Bible. So I notice when people believe that God wrote every word of the Bible, they almost always tend to belong to an organized religious community, which then provides them with interpersonal connections that are much more intense and regimented and demanding disciplined level than people who simply believe in God. So yeah, it's, it's possible to believe in God and it makes you know, no practical difference in your life. That's what I see in America. Right? For most people who believe in God or don't believe in God, I don't see it making any practical difference in their life. But, and this is Dennis Prager's point, people who believe that God wrote the Bible, that almost always makes a difference in their life. Now, it doesn't necessarily make them better, but it does change them because it does almost always chain them, connect them to an organized community, which then will discipline them, keep an eye on them, provide models for them, guide them. So you kind of don't have nearly as much freedom when you believe God read every word of the Bible. Oh, man, some just, I was just spitting pure gold today, man. Just some great live streams. G'day, Mate 40 here. So I was listening to Dennis Prager talk about how he had tremendous success early on in life. So about age 22, 23, he realized he had formidable qualities of charm and verbal persuasion. And he decided that uh, he was going to use those for God and for goodness. And that he was just going to be a vessel for certain important ideas, such as ethical monotheism, meaning that God's primary demand of us is that we behave ethically. So he just sees himself as a vessel for certain you know, lofty, morally improving ideas. And therefore, it was his kind of his life's mission to teach people the difference between right and wrong, to morally educate people, to sensitize people the importance of behaving in an ethical manner. I remember when I heard this first from Dennis Prager on KBC Radio in Los Angeles around 1988, I found an absolutely intoxicating message. But can you imagine 
going through life feeling like you are a vessel for God and that you have a mission to teach people about right and wrong, absolutely intoxicating vision. And how would one not feel important with such a mission? So that's like morally elevating. It would be psychologically and personally strengthening. It would give one passion, meaning, purpose. You know, a lot of great things flow from that type of thinking. Now, is it true? So I used to think that was true, that the most important thing is teach people about God-based ethics, ethical monotheism, that God demands that we treat other people ethically, that nothing more important than morally educating people. And then, as I've gotten older, and I've been humbled by life. I realized that uh, my own attempts to behave ethically didn't really get me anywhere because I had all these disabling addictions that kind of got in the way and achieved priority over behaving ethically. So when I had an opportunity to go to bed with another you know, attractive young woman, even though I didn't plan to stay with her and marry her, I mean, the pleasure of those interactions with her kind of outweighed my commitment to ethical monotheism. And at times my visceral need for attention would you know, outweigh my devotion to ethical monotheism. And so I kind of realized from my own life that... Uh, putting a priority and trying to be an ethical person simply didn't work because as long as I was in the grip of various addictions or as long as I had kind of a disordered attachment level to myself and to other people, all my attempts to behave ethically didn't really get me anywhere. And so from my own life experience, I saw that people who loved other people, had good relations with family, friends, right, they tended basically to behave ethically because when you're happy, when you feel good, you naturally look for opportunities to be helpful to other people and naturally kind of desist from opportunities to totally screw people over because if you totally screw people over you're creating enormous openings in your life for chaos and for retaliation so if you're if you've got a basically happy life right you're incentivized not to screw people over because there are tremendous chances that either they will retaliate or other people will retaliate on their behalf so it seems from my life experience the most important thing is to help people to feel comfortable and at ease with themselves with other people and as people you know live lives of you know, normal attachment to others, like have friends, get along with their family, that uh, then good things flow from that. As opposed to trying to morally sensitize people to various moral rules, because there aren't really a lot of uh, moral rules that you can apply to life. It's basically an orientation. If you're at ease with yourself, then you're not going to feel strongly pushed or incentivized to disrupt or damage other people because of how disruptive and damaging that could then be to your life. If you've got something precious going on in your life, you're not going to want to risk it. If you don't have anything precious going on in your life, then you can behave in all sorts of haphazard and dangerous and ways. So you see with like serial killers, they're almost always loners, but when, when you meet people who like their family, ha have friends, right, they're rarely just totally needlessly cruel. And then I was also impressed by the, the example of say Japan and South Korea, that these are like overwhelmingly far more law-abiding societies than any Christian or Jewish society, right? Japan is overwhelmingly a secular country. It's not a religious country. It's not a monotheistic country. And yet they treat their families far better. They have far lower rates of crime, far lower rates of, of violent crime. Now, overall, they just behave in a far superior manner to any extended Christian or Jewish community of which I'm aware. So if Japan, for example, you know, without God, without religion, without monotheism, without ethical monotheism, if the Japanese consistently behave better, including in their diaspora communities in Brazil and California, and if they consistently be behave better than the monotheists around them, then uh, maybe you know, God-based ethics is not the most important thing in life. So we all naturally think you know, that what we do is you know, really important. And my father was a theologian, so he thought theology was the absolute numero uno of all disciplines. And Dennis Prager has this life mission of teaching people right and wrong, which is, you know, should just fill you with a tremendous sense of importance. Like, what could be more important than morally educating people? But what if morally educating people is not particularly effective in morally uplifting people? What if the most important thing that uh, determines the morality of someone's behavior is the quality of their relationships, which is a reflection of one's own relationship with oneself. So to the extent that one can encourage other people to feel increasing sense of comfort and at ease with themselves, including their own inclinations towards uh, doing selfish, mean, nasty things, then you would open up space for people to have better relations with others. Once you have better relations with others and you're at ease with yourself, then you have something precious going on in your life and you're not going to want to risk it. And then like basically decent and sometimes generous behavior simply flows from people being at ease with themselves and, and with others and having something precious to partake.
a strong trial-ready murder case and gang assault case against all four of these individuals where this brutal, savage homicide was captured on video. He was handed a strong trial-ready case, ready to go to trial. As soon as he took office, the case immediately began to unravel. And as far as the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, if he's receiving one penny of federal dollars, you need to pull that funding until he starts doing his damn... So I love little explanations, like little levers, little ways to unlock life. And I think one lever for unlocking life is to realize that uh, beyond just survival, uh, almost everything we do after that is to feel important. So we cheer on the Dallas Cowboys because the more unhappy we are, the more desperate we are to rid ourselves of an unwanted self and to dissolve ourselves into some uh, epic, uh, winning, uh, cool organization. So I think that's what drives a lot of converts, such as myself. When I was in my early 20s, I was not thrilled with myself, and I wanted very much to kind of uh, get rid of an unwanted self and to dissolve myself into a much superior corporate entity of uh, Judaism. And so it, it is, I think, with all the talk right now about civil war and the apocalypse, meaning the end of the world, the end of life, Right? There's tremendous vanity behind this thinking, because if the world's coming to an end, right, then there's nothing more serious. But if America is heading into a civil war, right, there's no topic that is more important to talk about. So you are at the center of what's really going on. The world's coming to an end. You're part of the final generation. Right? You're super-duper important. So we, we all, like, I'm doing this live stream in part because I want to feel more important than I currently am, than I would be without doing this live stream. So it doesn't make you bad to want to feel more important. It's just kind of amusing how motivated we all are to feel more important than we are, and at the same time, how much contempt and disgust we have for many of the ways that people act to try to feel more important. So if someone volunteers, right, does good things to feel more important, creates you know, wonderful things to improve the quality of our lives, right, to feel more important, if someone you know, starts a business and employs people and conducts business in a legal and ethical way, then I would hope that we would admire them. Right? But when people do things to feel more important that are antisocial and degrade the quality of our lives and then we naturally have contempt. So I think that hyping civil war, like Dennis Prager does, he's been saying for over two decades that America is in a non-shooting civil war. And I think that is poison for the soul to the extent that people take that seriously, it will make them feel less safe. It will lead them to put up more barriers against uh, other people with the you know, opposing politics. It will make you less effective in life, less happy, you know, less able to relate to people with you know, contrary politics to your own, less likely to get along with neighbors and co-workers. So to me, that kind of thinking that, uh, that could it happen here, it's already happening here, right? I think that's absolute poison. So the phrase, could it happen here, that is generally primarily taken to refer to Nazi Germany. So saying that America's already turning into Nazi Germany, I think it's hyperbolic, I think it's histrionic, I think it's extreme. None of the evidence that, that Dennis Prager puts forward to argue for why we're becoming more like Nazi Germany stands out because none of the points he makes in service of his argument are unique to Nazi Germany, right? They're just, uh, they're just things that dozens, if not hundreds of nations and governments have done, such as more you know, government control over business or restrictions on speech, right? None of those things are peculiar or particular to Nazi Germany. So. It'd be hard to find a happier man than Dennis Prager, so I don't think he is you know, coming to his apocalyptic civil war point of view from a state of unhappiness. But it is pretty much essential to be a syndicated right-wing talk show host. I don't know syndicated left-wing talk show host, so I don't know the dynamics of the left as well as I know the dynamics of the right. But the essence of being successful right-wing talk show host and pundit is to emphasize that your listeners are victims and you are the, the vehicle by which they can become empowered, that you're going to take on all the institutions that are holding them back.
So I notice a lot of older people talk about uh, the apocalypse or uh, the, the end of you know, American Jewish literature or the end of this literature or the end of this type of poetry or the end of this type of art or the end of this cultural moment, right? And I notice a lot of you know, older intellectuals feel like uh, this or that cultural moment is dying with them, which again, you know, enhances their vanity, enhances their sense of importance. So there's got to be healthier ways to you know, enhance your feeling of importance than making false proclamations about the end of this or that civilization. I was at Sierra Community College, I think, in fall of 1985 when I first encountered people who seriously argued that planet Earth would be better off without human beings. So there's a whole philosophical movement behind saying that the world would be better off without people because we're just destroying the planet and so you know, birds and... Yeah, question, does my family watch my show? No, I mean, Dennis Prager's family relatives don't watch his show either. So uh, a few years ago, I'd occasionally send my brother clips from the show, but I don't think I've done that for years. I mean, it's been many months since I've told anyone in my life that they should watch like any particular show or I've sent them a link to you know some show I, I do. So I very rarely tell friends. Like I was talking to someone this afternoon and I thought that he would resonate with what I'm talking about on today's show. But this, this friend, I didn't didn't bother to send him a link if he you know he, he knows about my show if he you know wants to seek it out he, he'll find it but no i don't i don't promote my show to my friends acquaintances or family and my family doesn't have uh, any interest in my show some trees and animals right, they'd be better off without us and there's this one south african philosopher who argues that the sum total of most people's life, lives is more pain than pleasure. So that's not my experience. I'm sure it is the experience of some people, but I don't think it's the experience of most people. So, so I think the core of this kind of anti-humanist philosophy that the planet would be better off without us is someone who's just deeply unhappy. So I do notice this with a lot of people who are in love with the idea of the apocalypse, right? in love with the idea of civil war, is a deep unhappiness or an above average need for excitement. Right? The apocalypse and civil war certainly be very exciting. And to have this above average need for importance, vanity, and excitement, you know, reflects a certain inner emptiness at your core, which reflects a lack of connection to other people. So, the would I ever move country? Yeah, I've seriously considered uh, moving back to Australia. I've also considered uh, seriously moving to Israel, but right now, very happy living in Los Angeles. Wait, this is a really good video I made. Foundation for my political philosophy, for my religious views, for my psychological views, for my social and cultural and economic views is love, right? Your life should revolve around people that you love, family that you love, extended family that you love. Your nation should be an extended family, right? Your community, uh, your friends, your culture, your way of life, right? You should have all these things that you love. Yeah, suicidal people want the world to end, says uh, their core. Or just people who are just lacking, with, lacking in love. Like I think a healthy politics and healthy economics begins with, with love. So I don't think people are here to serve the GNP. You know, I don't think GNP numbers you know, are the most important thing. So I, I think my, my parents, uh, not my parents, but family, extended family, would consider me uh, eccentric, uh, childish, childlike, uh, with an exaggerated opinion of you know the importance of my own words and thoughts and deeds. So they would see me as wasting my time with uh, live streams. We're not here to serve the Constitution, like the Constitution and whatever economic and political and cultural systems that we adopt, or religious systems, right, should enhance our ability to love one another, you know, love our friends, our, our family, create a, a community that we adore and to then protect it against you know, any outgroup that seeks to destroy us. And so there's a whole transhumanist movement of which Elon Musk is part, who think that, oh, we're developing computers right now. Computers can outcompete humans playing chess and computers are getting smarter and smarter than people and 
we're going to transcend humanity because computers are so much smarter than us and therefore they'll become they're more uh, economically efficient and so this idea that you know economics or some you know abstract notion is the primary value for a human being people who think the ruling classes are mad even stupid are more likely to be mentally ill than those who think that the ruling classes deserve to rule yeah yeah so i got to admit i inherited from my father a tendency to regard the outside world as the enemy to be debunked so this is a characteristic of many self-made men and unhappy people the outside world is the enemy to be debunked there are people who are now using chat gbt to me there are a lot of people who rail against the elite or the mentally ill or have some severe personal issues yeah yeah, I, I'm not afraid about ChatGBT. I'm not afraid of, you know, ChatGBT is going to make better shows than what I, I can put on. I don't think uh, ChatGBT is going to cost me my, my income, my, my business. But I know friends who claim that their business has been destroyed, all right? Their, their whole way of earning living has been destroyed and they have families to support, right? They are being challenged by ChatGBT, apparently, in a just devastating fashion. Uh, not not something that uh, particularly concerns or worries me. I I have considerably considerably less interest in ChatGPT than the the mainstream media. I very rarely, virtually never click on any you know ChatGPT AI related stories. Just not my thing. Not what I'm worried about. That's it for now. Take care. Bye bye.